This is a production of Cornell University. Yeah, uh, thanks everyone for joining. This is episode eight of the Cornell Church Show here in season four. Our guest today is a returning guest, Sean Keister of Longwood Gardens. Uh, we're excited to talk to Sean today. This is sort of sustainability week. Uh, Sean gave us a laundry list of things they are doing at Longwood Gardens. Very exciting uh, to talk to Sean about all these different things and all the logistics that's going to go uh, into these various initiatives. So uh, we're, we're going to get to conversation with Sean in a little bit. Uh, but as always, we'll, we'll hand it over to Frank Rossi here. Uh, Frank, you got some thoughts on the growing season. Uh, we were just talking before the show, uh, Ben Palmer's getting readings in the 90s in Massachusetts. It's getting hot, it's getting dry. Soil saturation is drying down. We're seeing that on some of our models. Uh, so it's, it's really gotten, it's gotten uh, heavy quick here in, in the growing season. Yeah, um, Earth Day's coming up. When is it? Tomorrow? When is Earth Day? Earth Day's tomorrow, I think. Okay. I think Earth Day is tomorrow, uh, mm -hmm. April 15th or 14th, the same day as tax day, right around the same as tax day. And then there's that famous 420 holiday that, you know, half the kids in Ithaca like uh, for sure. But um, welcome to the show. And we're going to get to our guest. Uh, and actually, he probably notices this picture in the background uh, comes from his landscape. Uh, and to me, it reminded me of a, a wonderful Andrew Wyeth uh uh, painting right with that girl in the field looking up on the hill it's a wonderful picture but Sean I googled you looking for a picture and I, I hate to say this is what comes up so for people who don't know you you want to be careful and then this guy uh, comes up uh, and the things that go on at Longwood Gardens uh, but you know really uh, welcome just give you an opening welcome here and then I want to go through the growing season and we're going to hear about all this exciting stuff especially uh, this new AVP job you have congratulations on that well deserved and since you had this lovely blog post on turf care rooted in data I thought we'd start out with some of the data that you gave us uh, years ago about the first uh, mowing date and as you said so far it's been pretty dry. We've had a really dry week, and especially down where you are, you're touching that red area where uh, the dry conditions last week are starting to build a little bit, but that also means the soils are starting to warm. Everybody's warming up pretty quickly, and once that soil is consistently in the 50-degree range, you're going to get some solid greening up uh, across the board, and I think that's exactly what we're starting to see. We had above normal temps over, you know, week to week. So we're not necessarily capturing everything that happened in the last couple of days. But yesterday, as Carl said, in some areas, uh, 20 degrees above normal. We had our first night sitting out on the porch uh, having dinner at night, right? You can, it was the heat held on uh, even into the nighttime. Now, when you think about turf growth, right, everybody's excited right? Everybody wants to get going, but it's really just getting going. Sean, how many mows have you put on that turf down there on your finest turf? How many mows? So we're between two and three right now. Okay, good. So you're, you're not surging. You're just root. Now you've sort of hit routine mowing. Right. right. Perfect. Okay. So where we are in the mid, if you're in the mid fifties, you're still only at about 40, 50% growth potential, how much it can grow. And we're going to be having a new growth model uh, coming online soon that we're still trying to work through and validate uh, these next couple of years. 
And it seems early. I don't know how, how far the dandelions are along. Uh, it looks like based on these models, our degree day models are saying you're just creeping into the place where uh, uh, broadleaf herbicide uh, down in, in your neck of the woods would, would maybe start to be used. It would be the ester formulation, not the amine yet. So again, these are sort of crude models here, but maybe crabgrass germination might just be coming in the next couple of weeks uh, to the southern part of the region. So, you know, I like this as a timing for folks listening because if this is a time where you can use something like dithiopyr that, that has some early post activity. So you can wait to see how much pressure you're having and then if you want to go out and make that application, you certainly can do it by knowing when the germination is. And it looks like the trend of being above normal and dry is, is likely to keep up for the next uh, eight to 10 days. So we are going to get some rain moving through, but it doesn't appear to be a lot of moisture that's going to be coming through for the next several days. So we talk about this all the time and in honor of Earth Day and our honored guest and my honored colleague who has really taken the lead on this project for us here in the program at Cornell, uh, addressing the changing climate and taking action here uh, on the Cornell campus. So Carl, I'll pass it to you now. Run the I'll run the slides for you and then I'll let you set up. Uh, I got a little bit at the end to set Sean up, but feel free to banter the two of you because you guys are, are knee deep in this and I think this is a, a, a fitting topic Carl for Earth Day uh, upon us particularly in the grounds area. Yeah and, and actually it's one we've gotten questions on so uh, Bill Brewer I don't know if Phil's on today uh, one of our uh, very frequent live listeners sent me a couple questions the other day and one of them was about turf and carbon you know where does where does turf stand and in terms of sequestration being a sink or a source of, of carbon emissions, right? The public generally views lawns and turf as, you know, we're mowing them a lot, we're, we're emitting these greenhouse gases, oh, that's not good. Um, but there's this great review paper, Frank, you talked on your Frankly Speaking podcast with uh, Claire Phillips, one of the authors on this, on this paper about uh, when you look at the whole system, you know, where, where do we stand? And they say, you know, it depends. But a lot of these, a lot of the systems, uh, turf grass systems, mostly lawn, less intensively managed ones are either carbon neutral or carbon sinks. And that's because we do a lot of, of sinking of carbon through the vegetative material, right? The organic matter, we're putting that into the ground. And we do a fair amount of that. It's really dependent on how intensely we manage uh, the landscape as, as to where we are on that spectrum, right? And I come back to this, uh, to this figure from Ignatieva, the Australian group who does a lot with urban lawns, right? If you look at the second one down for those looking regulating ecosystem services, on the positive side, if, if we're maintaining these appropriately, not too much, we can get that carbon sequestration benefit, right? You can see that on the left side. But if we're doing uh, too much mowing, right, gratuitous mowing, if we're applying too many fertilizers, which, which can lead to carbon emissions, we might be a net source of carbon, right? So it really depends where we are in that spectrum. Uh, in the last year and a half, I've gotten to work with Dan Scheid, our director of grounds here at Cornell. Uh, and as part of this carbon offsets committee here at Cornell, we have a climate goal by 2035 to be carbon neutral. We wanna take a look at our grounds and say, hey, what are we doing to save on our greenhouse gas emissions? How can we reduce, right? One of the very easiest ones is just to mow higher, right? Uh, when you increase the height of cut, right? If you're following the one third rule, you've got more time before you have to mow, reduces your mowing frequency. We did some calculations based on the research out there and fuel use rates 
We raise it about an inch over the last decade, and that leads to 20% less mowing. We save a certain amount uh, per hectare. That, that works out to about seven to 10 metric tons of carbon dioxide per year across all our grounds. Right, and there's these co-benefits, and, and those looking on the screen can see two houses, two landscapes, one on the right, which has their, their mowing height very high, one on the left, which is, is scalping it down, and you can see some drought stress there. So there's these co-benefits, too, that we, that we like to sort of quantify uh, in addition to carbon. So, you know, mowing higher is one thing we've done. Uh, yesterday on the golf show, I mentioned these tall grass, these native areas, whatever you want to call them, high rough. Uh, we're doing that on campus, too. So Dan has selected areas across campus. Uh, Live Slope, probably one of the most famous areas on campus where we have slope day, where there's a lot of student traffic. The really high sloped areas that are difficult to mow that people don't walk on anyway. He's transitioned that to meadows. And again, we calculated when you mow instead of 25 times a year, only one time a year, you save a lot, right? So about four and a half metric tons we've saved. Uh, Dan's got about 25 acres of this across campus now, and they look really beautiful. Uh, they have, again, these co-benefits, stormwater. Uh, they, they slow down stormwater, allow more infiltration. There's more pollinators. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing, Frank, is, is yesterday, preparing for yesterday's guest, Mike Fidanza, uh, we're looking through some research, and guess who pops up? Sean Keister and Mike, and Mike Fidanza in this paper on uh, the influence of grass species and mowing practices on weed cover of infrequently mowed grass stands, right? So interesting to read that paper. And, and Sean, you saw this firsthand, obviously, maybe tall fescues, these strong creeping red fescues are pretty good for, for those areas. So that's that's great to see too. And then, you know, one of the things that, that people don't think about when it comes to turf grass maintenance is the fertilizer you apply, and that can actually lead to some substantial uh, greenhouse gas emissions, right? So about 1%, it's hard to get a good number on this, about 1% of fertilizer comes back out, nitrogen fertilizer comes back out of the system as N2O gas. Nitrous oxide, uh, the reason that's important is because nitrous oxide is about 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas compared to carbon dioxide. Uh, so when you look at our, our fertilizer rates across campus over the years, uh, Dan has slowly uh, reduced those fertilizer rates and it's because of, uh, you know, the turf grass stand is accumulated organic matter, right? It can, you see this, this figure over here on the right as, as the year go, years go on, Lawns accumulate that organic matter. They don't need as much nitrogen because they can sort of recycle some of that, right? Especially if you're if you're putting clippings back into the system. So this leads to some pretty big reductions in greenhouse gases annually. 33 and a half is, is what we're estimating from going from our previous rates around two and a quarter pounds uh, per thousand to you know three quarters of a pound per thousand. Uh, so the last one is electrification, right? And, and Sean, you're going down this route as well. Uh, we can electrify the small equipment, right? The blowers and the trimmers. Uh, we can get about three and a half metric tons out of that here at Cornell. But the interesting thing is you can calculate all these other emissions that, that are important to human health and operator health, right? Carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons. Uh, these end up actually being the most complicated way, complication, uh, calculations to, to figure out. Um, but, you know, in a given year, we emit about 1,100 kilograms of carbon monoxide because of the uh, the trimmers and blowers we use on campus and it would be great to use electric versions of these things because then you don't inhale any of that stuff right so co-benefits again not just uh carbon dioxide emissions but operator health and safety right you don't have to you don't have as loud too that's a good thing um, and then of course the mowing fleet right so wisconsin is retrofitting their grounds operation with a bunch of these ride-on electric zero turn mowers they the operators seem to like those in the first year uh, again, on campus, we spend about 41 metric tons of carbon dioxide mowing the grounds every year. You know, if you can, if you can electrify, you really uh, decrease that number. Now, Frank, 
It's not zero, right? It depends on where your electricity is coming from. Again, Sean's gonna, gonna talk about some of this stuff today, but uh, you can use the CPA calculator based on your region in the US, uh, how much of your electricity is being produced by renewable resources versus things like coal that, that produce greenhouse gas emissions. And you look at us in upstate New York, we're, we're pretty good because we have a lot of renewable energy uh, that, that's producing our electricity, whereas some of those places downstate uh, don't have that benefit, right? So if you're transitioning to, to an electric fleet, you're not getting quite as much of, of the carbon benefit down there as you are up here. So, so that's a real brief overview of what Dan has been doing on Cornell, what I've been working on, just to really quantify what Dan's been doing. Uh, and this sort of leads us in, into a conversation with you, Sean, about uh, your sustainability initiatives. And maybe where I'll start is, uh, oh, we got to start with a poem. Chat GPT poem about got a limerick. sustainability. What, what is this, Frank? Would they're this mindful is... and wise of the planet we all must prize. With sustainable pursuits, they bear eco-friendly fruits and inspire us all to be allies. I absolutely love this because the opportunity that Carl talks about that we have here to model this in a high profile area. You know, I started out with this picture, right? So, you know, no one looks at this and says, oh, this looks sustainable to me, right, Sean? So you guys have had, as Carl said, have had to be very intentional about this. And if you, I would recommend anybody that wants to know more after we're done yakking over the next 10, 15 minutes, you can go to the Longwood website because it's all spelled out there. This is a real sort of organizational cultural thing, Sean, to look at this. And I think, Carl, that's what you're caught up in here. Cornell has a larger carbon project that has afforded us the opportunity to look at our system in this particular way. And again, you know, there's a myriad of things. And this is, of course, the picture that I'm, you know, mostly thinking about the meadow thing, but there's other ones, they're reclaimed water that you're using. And I'll just leave it here, Sean. And we'll, can you give us just an overview? Welcome to the show. Give us just an overview. You know, Carl said, you know, the way we're looking at things, really like to hear from you about the kinds of things that the way you're measuring things and the initiatives that you're taking in these variety of areas that you guys have embarked upon there at Longwood. Sure. And th thank you, Carl and Frank, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be invited back. Um, so you're right. Uh, I mean, I think, Frank, you, you touched on some of this. It's baked into the culture of Longwood in terms of my 24 years here. We're going to do the right things. And so the right thing might be it costs more upfront to do the right thing, environmental and sustainability. So uh, a good example is our, our, our brand new Longwood Reimagine project which is a $250 million project. It's 17 acres. It's going to open to our guests in November of 2024. Lots of initiatives we have in there sustainability-wise. So we're going to be capturing uh, stormwater coming from the gutters and downspouts of our new admin building and our conservatory complex, which will then be used to help supplement irrigation. Some of the water features in the conservatory complex, we're upgrading our affluent irrigation treatment facility so that we can utilize the, the gray water, if you will, inside our restroom facility. So something new to Longwood, once again, trying to reduce our footprint into the community of, of, of uh, using water from the aquifer, knowing that that's a, a big impact for things. So, so Sean, let me, let me stop you there so people hear this. You have your own sewage treatment operation in Longwood. That is, that is correct. We're and you are reusing that water in the landscape. That is correct. All of our outdoor landscape, except for a very small footprint, is irrigated, if needed, from affluent irrigation 
during the growing season. So we use about 3 million gallons of effluent irrigation for the turf grass, for the plants, for everything outdoors in a year. Uh, total for all of Longwood, so this would be anybody that has a, um, a building, things like that, it's about 11 million gallons we're putting back into the aquifer in our 40-acre affluent irrigation field. So we're re, uh, retreating it, and then we're putting it back into the aquifer to make sure that we're replenishing that. To be good neighbors, I mean, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So, so listen. Let let me focus you a little bit on your relaxed mowing. That's what we because we, you also you know now you have this paper out with Landscoot and Fidanza. That's that's a seedy group of professionals to be involved with. <laughs> I, I was a grad student with Pete Landscoot at the University of Rhode Island many moons ago. So um, let's talk a little bit about the amount of land you've taken and put into some form of relaxed mowing. And this is my favorite picture. Let's talk about this meadow garden first. What what is this thing about? It's so beautiful. So this is so this is actually this is our first large scale project from a strategic plan that opened to our guests. I believe it was it was either in twenty ten or twenty fourteen, and so it doubled the size of our meadow from forty acres to eighty acres. And so the thought there again was, how can we open up more of Longwood's one thousand one hundred acres to the public? So we have about three hundred fifty acres open to the public, and so with this. You can see this old historic house. It's the Webb Farmhouse. It has an unbelievable exhibit in it that dictates a, or pictures, I will say, of all of Chester County's uh, agriculture and, and initiatives going back from the 15, 1600s all the way up to the current day. So it can paint the picture of what Chester County looked like, which was rural agriculture back in the day. And so this meadow, if you will, was, is low input, right? That needs it. It's recharging it in terms of the groundwater. Um, we have an excellent land stewardship team that maintains this. And because of this meadow, the Longwood Reimagined Project, the majority of the, the areas outside that we normally would have turf grass are going to be a similar meadow appearance to this so that we're doing less input. So we're not going to go back with turf, uh, with turf grass in the majority of the areas for this uh, Longwood Reimagined. Once again, thinking more sustainability, low input needs for this. Okay. You've, this is great. Now, um, this is tricky, right? Um, did you use chemicals in establishing this thing? Do you have to go in and manage it? Talk a little bit uh, about this. We have some of this, you know, I, as much as I would really like to burn these things on campus, I just don't think that's probably the best idea. You do a little burning, don't you? That's correct. So we, so the land searcher team um, creates burn units. And so this year, I believe they burned three different uh, sections that are in the meadow to keep the invasives and also the woody plants out um, in these locations. But they, they do use on occasion, they will use herbicides to if they need to, to go in there. Uh, it's definitely not a zero input landscape by any stretch, but it's monitoring, uh, maintaining, and then also assessing these areas uh, by doing it. If you, if you could, if you could actually zoom out on this area and look to see what it used to, uh, a lot of the meadow used to be an orchard back in Pierre's day. And if you could do to Google Earth, you could see where the orchard trees were planted because the soil type is different. And so you could see the tree rings as you go around and look at it. It's really neat to see. And it, unless you knew the history, you would never pick up on the circles that were there as part of the orchard into this original meadow. So as you guys have planned to open the property to more people, Rather than make it intensely managed landscapes like you have at the formal gardens, right? You've embarked upon giving them access to it 
but in and in, in a in a in a it's a passive access, right? I mean, it's if people can walk. Do you cut pads through these things? I I think Dan would tell you uh, that that having the pads, having access, cutting around the pads, uh, maybe a pass or two. You still have to be intentional about the way you manage these spaces if you're going to allow access, Sean. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Because that's obviously an obstacle, too, for people like on a campus and in a garden where you want people walking all over the place, right? Right. No, there is. So, there, so there's paths that are cut through here where we want the, our guests to stay on those locations. And so we try and uh, create those paths that are uh, the most inviting, takes them to the areas of the, of the property that are the most interesting. We also have what you can't see in here. We have pavilions, which explain portions of the meadow. So one pavilion is the pollinator pavilion. It explains about pollination. Uh, we have other ones that explain about the fauna in the area. Um, and they're sprinkled throughout the, the meadow that we have. The paths we have are 10 foot. And I will say this just for anybody that's willing to do this, uh, me being turf background, I thought originally these paths have to be pristine, perfect. So we're out there doing all of our traditional turf care. And after the first year or two, it was so popular there was no way turf was staying on these paths. And so we, we had to reset our calibration, if you will, and say, you know what? It's more like a park or a, um, uh, an event like that. It could be compacted soil. It could have some stone in it. It doesn't have to be a finely sodded turf grass. And that's what we don't have out there anymore. Okay, that's very interesting. So, so that was, a, it's very, so you were saying your sort of turf mindset is where you started but no matter what you did, it wasn't going to put up with it. No matter how wide you made the pads, they were yeah. too popular and there was no way it was going to put up. But that's, that's a little bit of, oh, I got to get over my turf 101 training and say, you know, this ain't working. So big kudos uh, to think operationally and not stay, you know, adamant, like uh, to, to try to get the grass growing there. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about what Carl touched on with regard to electrification. Right. Uh, Dan's da dabbled around with it here. Uh, Carl outlined it a little bit. Um, how are you doing it? And, you know, are you doing it wholesale? How are you thinking about integrating it into the thing? And, and, and Carl showed the picture of the robot. But obviously, that's going to be a component of, of a lot of our operations coming forward. Let's talk about electrification automation. Sure. So we have a lot of uh, a number of years ago, we we really questioned the traditional Toro Workman and the John Deere gators, things like that. And so, you know, those have a, a need at Longwood because we have to have the, the hauling capacity. But if you're talking about somebody that just needs to get from point A to B, or maybe on a regular basis doesn't need the hauling capacity. So we quickly downsized and have a lot of electric vehicles or electric uh, uh, carry-alls in terms of you're carrying something small in the back. Mm -hmm. So we've greatly reduced that footprint. Most of my outdoor landscape team, which is which is part of my uh, new group under me, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, they utilize all electric uh, handheld stuff. So whether it's a chainsaw or uh, hedge oh. trimmers, things like that, they like them because they're lighter and they actually have the ones we have. You can have like an electric battery pack that's a yeah. vest. Yeah. And so they don't have the weight in their hands anymore uh, for that. And with that, you can change out your batteries and you're still productive all day because you buy multiple batteries and you're while you're charging one, you're, you keep going with it. Okay, time, go ahead. We have a sustainability could... committee that's going to look at the whole campus wide and say, how can we slowly start eliminating our pickup trucks that are gas powered and start changing them to electric or, or some other fuel source uh, so we can reduce that footprint as well. Okay. Um, 
We've thought about this at uh, the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, where I've been playing around the last six or seven years. And um, in discussions with the contractors that are coming in to do the work, they were describing a wall of battery chargers that would literally be uh, 10, you know, 10 by 20 wide of nothing but battery chargers to keep line trimmers and blowers, uh, just the handheld stuff going on a regular basis we obviously were had a bit of a shudder at that and then you know also having some solar panels on the surface to carl's point earlier where we getting the power from that that matters as well can you talk about for folks listening a little bit about the logistics of having an enormous volume of of battery operated equipment that then has to be charged as you showed as you said routinely during the course of the day Right. So, so you're right. So we built, a, as part of the solar reimagined project, we had to build a new horticulture equipment uh, building, which is where the turf team and the outdoor landscape team is headquartered. And um, just because I didn't know enough about it, but we have so many electric uh, golf carts and vehicles now, we had to build a separate building inside of it, if you will, to house these batteries, because there's different standards for them. So you have to have, we had to have monitoring for hydrogen gas that was being uh, uh, given off and also uh, venting that would come on with uh, different sensors. And so all of our stuff at this new facility is kept into, if you will, their own couple bays that are just meant for electric uh, uh, storage and recharging that we have. And then the, um, the other thing we did is most of the plugs we have come down from the, the ceiling now, so you can plug into your chargers at the end of the day. But it was a different mindset because you're right, if you're gonna have all these batteries, you need you can't just store them in the old storage shed and just plug into the outlet and just uh, walk away and forget about it. And so wow. I think as we progress in, in Longwood, we're going to have to build more facilities like this and start thinking of that infrastructure needs and the safety needs uh, incorporated with that. Carl, I don't want to hog this brilliant guy much more. I got a waste question, but I'm going to shut up for now. That answer that you just gave about battery is worth the entire season of listening to this baloney that we chat about every week. Well done, Sean. This is, I think, a quite, you know, something that we don't think about. You know, we're rushing full throttle into this and not necessarily thinking about it. Carl, what do you got for Sean? Yeah, I think that, you know, the battle of being a first adopter and early adopter with some of these technologies, Frank, is, is where we learn a lot, right? So we're learning from you, Sean, you know, it's it's a it's a good thought to go to electric equipment. There's the infrastructure that that I've learned. You know, I went to a little conference a couple weeks ago where I learned you know, you got to be really intentional about how you set up that infrastructure and how many batteries you need a day. And and maybe even we could talk about uh, the challenges with the productivity. If uh, you know, I don't know if you guys are heavily using gas power or electric powered blowers now, but uh, a big concern with landscapers and, and grounds operations who do a lot of blowing material back into the uh, the native spaces. Uh, have you have you experienced those challenges with with drops in productivity and having to sort of eat that that uh, drop in efficiency because of of that early adoption transition to electric equipment? That's that's, that's an excellent point. And so so far, the pushback I've received is more from the um, the big leaf blowing. So in the fall, is that the productivity isn't there with a with a handheld or a battery power compared to the compared to the gas powered one. And so that we haven't adopted fully yet, but we're going to have to get over that because it's not just the fuel, but it's also the noise. And so having 1.6 million visitors at Longwood in a year, you can't just go out with a turbine blower at 10 o'clock in the morning or at noon. And because the guests are coming here for the reprieve of the, the, the quiet, the beauty, 
And if you hear that, you're not having that, right? And so we, we are getting that feedback now. And so we need to start looking at different ways of, of doing that. And then just a last quick story. So we used to call it the magical leaf. Somebody on the west side of the property would grow, blow that leaf. The central part of the property would blow that leaf. The leaf would end up at the east side of the property. And somebody goes, if you just picked it up on the west side of the property, you wouldn't blow it three more times before it goes into the woods. And so um, we would always joke around with each other. It's like, just pick them up. Instead of blowing, pick them up. So whether it's a back system or something like that as you're going around, think of it differently and don't just blow it to somebody else and think they're going to deal with it down the road. Um, yeah, and, and this is again going yeah. to the co-benefits, right, yeah. Sean? I mean, uh, I know we like to focus on, you know, sort of sustainability week here uh, on the show for us, but it's not just carbon dioxide emissions. It's uh, the noise component is the biggest component. When I go down to landscapers in Rockland County where there's blower bands and everything, uh, people hate the noise. And that's like the number one concern down there. Uh, you know, that Wisconsin, uh, you know, they're transitioning those zero turn electric mowers. One of the crazy things is the operators have to have a horn on it to let students mm -hmm. know because they're so quiet. They actually got to, hey, beep, beep, I'm, I'm mowing here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's all these other co-benefits that I think are important to, to think about, not just the, you know, the, the carbon emissions. And just like that, 30 minutes is over. We got one more question, Carl, or we're going to let everybody go. So, so here's a good question from Ben Palmer. Uh, you know, we talked about the burning versus maybe herbicide use in, in the meadow areas. He's asking, uh, you know, what has more environmental issues, uh, selective herbicides or burning? That's a tough question to answer, Frank. Uh, it, you know, when I think about it initially, the burning maybe releases, you know, obviously that's releasing some, uh, some carbon dioxide gas, right? You're burning organic material. Um, but it's maybe rejuvenating the stand. Maybe you don't have to use the herbicides later on. As Sean, as you said, it's introducing the woody plants, the invasives. The herbicides, on the other hand, are really quick. They're designed to degrade really, really uh, fast in some cases. They're you selectively- spot You can, you can spot, spot treat. treat. Yeah, so it's, I don't know if there's a single answer to that, Frank. That's a, that's a tough, uh, tough question to answer. Yeah, I mean, in a perfectly natural system, to your point, um, when you burn, you also get some benefits to, to this weed seed bank. So you have long-term uh, benefits, makes the grass stand more competitive, and that's going to be better for less weeds, especially if you don't disturb it. And then uh, the, the weed seed bank is going to be impacted a little bit. Sean, have you ever noticed anything between where you burn and have used herbicides? I, I think they're, they're very different. I mean, they're two, they're two different tools. And so the one thing I will say when you burn, if you get a rainfall afterwards, within two weeks, you're seeing green. And so your response back up again is ginormous mm -hmm. um, with this in terms of the, the green up and, and the, the, the growth you're getting. So I think you just have to think of them as they're, they're, they're two tools, but they're different in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. That's right. All right, Carl. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. What a joy. This was a lovely conversation. A great one for Earth Day, Carl. You felt pretty good. Real engineering topics today, Carl. Right in your lane, brother. The, the calculations are right in my lane. Yeah, yeah. When I have to go through EPA documents, <laughs> two-stroke, four-stroke engines to figure out carbon monoxide emissions, that's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but, uh, but thanks, everyone, for joining today. Uh, we'll see you next week for another golf and, and sports show. Again, thanks to Sean for joining us and, and talking. Thanks, about sustainable initiatives. Take care, Thank everybody. You, Carl. Bye, everybody. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.